Good morning and good afternoon or good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show. Today is Friday, March the 3rd, and I am your host, Tiffany, and joining me from our virtual studio from all over the planet is Elliot and Doug. Hello, Hello. guys. Hello. Yeah, we're down to just half of our crew today. Uh, Erica's away. Gabby's away. The good half, though. Jonathan's away. Our host with the most is away. But we shall persevere, and we'll try not to lie to you too much during this show. So the the topic of our show, well, the title of our show is Liar, Liar, Pants on Fire, The Truth About Lying. So in today's show, we're going to explore the topic of lies, liars, and lying. Uh, we're going to talk about compulsive liars, pathological lies, liars, but everybody lies, and people have done so since childhood. Uh, science has said that people learn how to lie around the age of three, and that the average person lies about three times a day. Three times within the first minute of meeting a stranger, and between 10 and 200 times a day, which is just unbelievable. <laughs> but we, we lie to grease the social wheels to protect other people's feelings. We lie to make ourselves feel good. We lie for some benefit for ourselves. And some people just lie because that's what they do. <laughs> uh, we're going to talk about uh, detecting lies if it's possible. Uh, it's certainly not possible in all cases and with all people. So we'll get into that. And we'll get into uh, lying and believing in lies and how it affects us. And then lastly, we'll get into why lying is sometimes necessary. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, do we want to start with what lying actually is? I got some, sure. some excerpts from uh, a book called Lying by Sam Harris. And I thought he gave a pretty good definition. He said that lying is intentionally misleading others when they expect honest communication. Hmm. Interesting. And essentially, lying denies the other person access to reality. Which is kind of right. deep when you think about it. Like when you tell somebody yeah. a lie, you're basically blocking them from... The truth. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you're blocking them from making a complete informed decision based on reality. Interesting. Also- it's interesting, too, that in the first definition that you said it's intentionally. Yes. Because I, I had always thought that it's possible to kind of lie. Well, I don't know. I guess it, it, I guess it does require intention. Mm-hmm. Like the, the, the point is that you intentionally are deceiving somebody. That's what makes it a lie and not just a mistake. Yeah, because you have to, like when you're younger, you develop a theory of mind, which basically says that I am separate from other people. My thoughts are separate from other people. You have to actually know that in order to make make up a lie. And you have to know that other people can't read your mind in order Mm -hmm. to know that lying will be something that will work for you in that specific situation. But another thing that uh, Sam Harris said in this book is that lying is a refusal 
to cooperate with others. It's a failure to understand and an unwillingness to be understood. And that to lie is to recoil from a relationship or place a barrier between you and the recipient. Wow. So I thought that was that was pretty good because basically that's what it is on a certain level. You're putting a wall up between you and the person that you're lying to. So you can't really interact in a meaningful way or in a completely honest way. It might not be such a big deal. I mean, people think that line isn't such a big deal in a lot of cases. That's why they do it. But mm. really, that's what it is. You're putting up a wall between you and the other person. Okay. But I know we're going to get into yeah. when lying might be a good thing later on. Yeah, sometimes you do but, want a wall between you and the other person. What? Yeah, I mean, it's it's like the 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 whole idea that sometimes lies are like a, like a social lubricant, right? Like, I mean, if everybody was like just absolutely completely honest, a hundred percent of the time, that would make things pretty awkward as well, yes. or just pretty awkward in general. You know, do you like my new haircut? Uh, no, it's terrible. You should get your money back. That's just awful. It's like it's not. Yeah, I mean, there are some situations I think that call for, you know, at least little white lies, I guess. Yeah, how yeah, well does our society it, work if, you know, someone asks you, how are you doing today? And you say, oh, it's terrible. My hemorrhoids are really just acting up right now. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if we all did that, you know, <laughs> things wouldn't move on. <laughs> the day wouldn't move on that well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There, there's always context. And that's what's important to remember all of the time is that in some situations, it, depending on what the situation is, um, you know, it may call for a, a small white lie. Um, the, one of the, the examples I always think of when I fall into black and white thinking about lying and things like that, like, you know, there are some people who might say, okay, lying is, is always a really bad thing and you should always tell the truth. And yet I often think of the example of back in Nazi Germany, um, the, the, the families who, who used to take in the, the, the Jews and used to mm. hide them under, under the basement or behind the furniture or whatever. And then a Nazi bangs on the door and says, Hey, you know, SS officer, whatever. And says, you know, have you got anyone hiding in the house? And you know, <laughs> that, always telling the truth, telling the truth would not be appropriate in that situation because mm -hmm. you, you have to understand the consequences of the information that you're disclosing. And so it's always important to, to, to understand that there is, there is always context and it cannot be so black and white as to say, you know, lying is, is always bad or just like lying yeah. is, is, is good. Just like honesty isn't, the best policy versus honesty is not always the best policy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there, there are fine lines that need to be paid attention to. Uh, but mm -hmm. I thought it was funny about Doug, when you said that you can't go around telling the truth all the time, there are some people who are pathological mm -hmm. truth tellers, like uh, yeah. certain people with autism or Asperger's who mm -hmm. are, not really good at telling lies, but they're just really blunt and direct in their interactions with people. 
which really doesn't help the social situation. Um, they have enough trouble as it is with social situations. So this is just another, another ding. Yeah. Really interesting thing about that too, is that um, they're also apparently quite bad at um, detecting when others are lying or being un, uh, untoward in their interactions. So that, that again makes, you know, social interactions can be quite, quite difficult in those situations, I would think. So do we want to get into some pathological lying? And sure. Impulsive lying. And what's the difference? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of, <laughs> ah, there you go. Well, at first I thought there really wasn't much of a difference at all, but uh, according to research I've been doing, um, there is a difference apparently, but it's, I consider it more of a spectrum, like you have the compulsive liars, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners have met a few of these people throughout their lifetimes. It's like people who just embellish and exaggerate their stories, like they really didn't have to make it go that far, like if they're just talking about Mm. going to the grocery store or something, and then they add in all these extra details that aren't true, just to... I don't know, maybe they think that they're telling the the recipient something that they want to hear. Hmm. And then uh, pathological liars, I found interesting, is that they continue to lie even when they know that you know that they're lying. (laughs) (laughs) Well, pathological liars, I think, are usually intending to like I, I the, the difference I thought was that kind of compulsive liars are people who just seem to lie even when there's no real reason to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have known people like this before who would tell you some kind of story and you're just kind of sitting there thinking that there's no way that this is true. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're not benefiting from it in any way. They're just kind of like, it's just like they open their mouth and out come these lies. Um, whereas I always thought that a pathological liar was usually someone who was lying to benefit themselves in some way. Maybe that distinction isn't quite um, textbook, but that's that's how I had thought of it. Yeah, because it seems like a lot of lies, even told by people who are not pathological, the lies are told to benefit themselves in a certain way, whether it's to yeah. uh, impress, impression manage, you know, control what a, the other person thinks about them. So it's kind of uh, a gray area. But uh, there was a story about this... Um, prison psychologist who said he was working with this prisoner and he noticed that the prisoner was walking on his tiptoes hmm. all during the time that he was interacting with him. And then he asked him, you know, what happened to you? Why you, why do you have to walk that way? And the guy told him this big, long convincing story about how he had this motorcycle accident when he was a child and it damaged his uh, calves or hamstrings or something. And it caused him to walk that way. And then a few days later, another uh, psychologist in the same prison was working with the same guy, and the guy was walking normally. And there was absolutely no reason. I mean, why would you walk on your tiptoes and make up this big story about it? What benefit would he have had to this prisoner to make people think that he was in a car accident or something? It's, It's almost like there's a strange sense of satisfaction 
um, that, that comes with with getting people to believe your lies. It's almost mm-hmm. like uh, the way I see it is kind of like a dominance, a, pa- a power thing. You know, like um, it's almost like if 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 they can fool you, if they can get you to believe their narrative, then they have some sort of it somehow makes them better better than you in their mm-hmm. mind. Mm-hmm. Almost, it's kind of like a game. It kind of fits into the whole psychopathy thing in that you know. <laughs> To, to to an average person, it, it simply doesn't make sense why someone would just lie for the sake of lying. But when you, I mean, again, for the average person, I was saying this before the show, it, it, I think it would be so amazing just to, to sort of see what it was like to live their life just for a day, just to see what goes <laughs> on in their mind. Because mm-hmm. for, for normal people, we simply cannot comprehend the the level of, just just the way that their brain works you know the way that they they think the way that they perceive others but i think it um maybe there's some sort of pleasure that they get from this and what i found really interesting was that liars brains um there's there's some evidence to say that their brains are actually structurally different from the average person's brain in that um mm-hmm. a liar's brain they have more white matter in the in the prefrontal cortex and so the scientists who were doing this study who found these results, um, they actually concluded that the increase in white matter um, is maybe how how they managed to come up with such lies so so frequently and so easily um, where when the average person may stumble or they may not know what to say or, or can't necessarily form a, a narrative which is um, sort of, you know, um, believable. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, it's 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 very strange. <laughs> yeah, it, one one article that was writing about that study actually was saying that um, there was they, they were theorizing that maybe the increase in white matter was from the people who were kind of practiced liars um, suppressing their emotional response that normally people would have when they're lying. So usually if somebody lies, they're, they're, they make themselves uncomfortable in some way. You know, it's not, it's not a comfortable thing. Like, you know, we're more, our default is to tell the truth. It takes more energy for the brain to, to, to lie. So they were saying that by, you know, both coming up with a creative narrative that's believable and also suppressing that kind of emotional response to what normally a person would have to lying. Um, is that you know it, it actually changes the structure of the brain and it starts building more of this white matter in order to to facilitate that better mm-hmm. well the question is is it because of the increased white matter in the brain that makes it easier to lie or is it uh, the act of repeated lying that increases the white matter and yeah. I'm not quite sure if there's ever been any studies on this but uh, I don't know that's a good question. Um, yeah. But what you were saying before, Elliot, about uh, people who just um, seem to get off in some way on pulling the wool over other people's eyes, uh, that's called duping delight. And psychopaths huh. actually do that. They might not benefit in any way over, but they they like the fact that other people believe them when they're telling a lie. But um, I, yeah, I actually. Sorry, I was just going to say I actually knew a guy once, um, quite well, or at least I thought that I know him. I knew him well, um, and some 
I won't go into any detail in the story, but it turns out that the the guy who I'm talking about was, you know, exposed as one of these kind of pathological liars. Um, and just many of the things that he told people around him turned out to just be completely false. And it was kind of that, that situation where it's, it's, it's like you look at the lies and you, you really question, you know, in what way does this person benefit from this? There, there, there was no logical reason that he should come up with a lie simply for the, just for the, um, purpose of coming up with the lie, you know, and it, it kind yeah. of, um, you know, it was kind of evidence that, for, or for me anyway, that there are people who who literally do just get off on having other people believe their lies, and for for really no reason. Um, and when you see that sort of firsthand, it's it's quite astonishing, because yeah. again, it is so far separated from uh, a normal person's reality that um, it's it's really quite insightful. I actually knew a guy when I was in high school who, I don't know, I wouldn't call him a pathological liar, but he's certainly a compulsive liar. Um, and it was weird. He was kind of a socially awkward guy. Um, and I'm trying to, you know, sit here and trying to remember some of the some things that he came up with because some of them were quite hilarious. But the one that I actually remember is we were sitting around talking and somehow the, the subject of New York City came up. And he said, um, yeah, there's no alleys in New York. And it was just kind of stopped and said, but what did you say? He's like, no, there's no alleys. There's no alleyways. And we're all like, what, what are you talking about? Of course there are alleyways in New York. Like it, it just, it, it was, it was such a, an incredible lie that is so obviously not true. And then he started falling back on, well, I've been there. Have you been there? Blah, 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 blah. But it's kind of like, you know, anywhere where you have two buildings next to each other, they don't touch. You've got an alley. So it was, it was really like, just like kind of jaw dropping. And it's kind of like, and again, like you're saying, Elliot, it's like, I have no idea why he would have decided that that was something like that was a stance that he wanted to take. It was, and it just didn't seem to make any sense because, you know, more than anything, he was just like bringing ridicule on himself. So it really, it, it, you know, that was just one example. He used to say pretty outrageous things all the time. And that, that's another good point. Like some people, um, they lie either compulsively or pathologically and they get found out and at least all these horrific consequences, it brings ridicule <laughs> upon them and, uh, they don't stop. They continue to mm. do it. So what is that about? I don't know. Maybe it's just some kind of weird twisted attention seeking behavior of some kind. Because, mm-hmm. uh, like you mentioned earlier, Doug, Lying takes a lot of work. It's a lot of work for the brain. It's more cognitively demanding than telling the truth about something because there's all these things you have to take into consideration when you're lying. You have to control how you're acting. Uh, mm. You have to come across as calm, cool, and collected. You have to be checking the p- other person that you're lying to to make sure that they're you know, really believing your story. You have to stay in character. Uh, mm. you have to make sure that little bits of the truth don't slip out. Um, so there's all this, all this extra work that you have to do. So it makes sense that there would be some kind of, uh, differences in brain structure between people who lie repeatedly and people who just, you know, do the usual run of the mill everyday white lies for the most part. Yeah. There's also remembering your lies. 
Yeah. Because in a lot of situations, if you're if you're telling a whopper of a lie, you better remember it because that person might come back to you and, uh, oh, here, tell this other guy the story you just told me. Um, I don't remember <laughs> the details so well because I was lying. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, considering people who are not pathological and they lie to protect themselves or, uh, yeah. I I think that's the biggest reason for a lot of people lying. But um, over time, Mm. uh, it can kind of make you angry towards the person that you lied to. Or sometimes, like, you can try to make it up to that person and because you feel guilty about lying. Like the guy who cheats on his wife and then comes home and brings her flowers, things like Mm -hmm. that. Um, And then you you sometimes get angry and kind of like justify or demonize the other person that you lied to. Like they deserve to be lied to because, you Mm -hmm. know, they're not such a great person themselves. So, you know, I lied to them and it's okay. Um, Yeah. Or sometimes you'll just act coldly or, or you'll avoid that person or that situation because it makes you so guilty to think about how much of a bad person you are because you lied. So it kind of, has an impact on your relationship. And again, it puts up that barrier between Mm -hmm. you and that other person. Yeah. So with all this lying, I mean, can we even detect lies? And there's been a lot of books written and talks given about detecting lies Mm -hmm. and, you know, signs of lying and how to tell somebody's lying to you. And does that really even work? Uh, yeah. Well, the studies, I mean, the, some of the studies on it would suggest that, no, it probably doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, we're often quite a lot more confident about our ability to spot lies than we have the capacity for. Uh, I think mm-hmm. we think that we, we, we think that we could see um, when someone's lying, but it actually turns out that, uh, well, research has shown that no, that's not the case. Um, so there's there's a few different sort of markers for um, for identifying someone who's lying, and um, some of the common ones are not making eye contact. Mm-hmm. So the idea that when someone's speaking to you and they don't make eye contact with you, that is a suggestion that they are telling a fib. Um, another one is um, they they sort of whether they stutter when they're speaking or whether they um, are unsure about, you know, constantly pausing and saying, um, ah, you know, and and not being able to form like a um, a proper sort of sentence. (laughs) Another Mm -hmm. one is whether they are fidgeting, like someone playing with their hands um, or or even looking in different directions. Like there's some neuro-linguistic programming um, practitioners who will claim that if you are looking in a certain direction, I've actually looked into this before and it's very interesting. Um, but it talks about how, say, like you're looking to the, the top right left hand corner. That means you're telling the truth mm. or say if you're looking to the top right or to the bottom right, then it means that you're uh, it's like accessing a creative part of your brain. Therefore, you're coming up with with it, with a story that's not necessarily true. Um, but there was some research that actually um, it was conducted and it was on whether people could detect whether someone was telling the truth or not. And um, and it basically found that 
only 48% of those people um, could tell, could see or could spot when someone was lying. And that is actually less than chance. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's only two options. It's either lying or telling the truth. So it's 50-50. So, (laughs) I mean, (laughs) the fact that it was only 40%, 48% um, positive means that people really um, have no chance when when it comes to spotting lies or they or they you know they, even when using the proper markers like you know looking at the the bodily uh, sort of a, a body posture and the the you know whether the person is fidgeting whether they're looking in certain directions all of that the research shows that none of that is a good marker for for whether someone is is lying or not well, yeah. I mean, a lot of those that you listed uh, could just be a sign of being kind of socially uncomfortable mm-hmm. or like, you know, somebody who's not, um, you know, totally, you know, has, has, has some sort of difficulty with social interaction or something like that as a, as an anxious person or something like fidgeting and not making eye contact. All those things could be, there could be a number of different reasons why somebody does that. Not necessarily yeah. lying. Yeah. There was one researcher who talked about a woman who was fidgeting and seemed very nervous during an interview and it turns out that she was worried because she was parked in the wrong spot and she was worried if she was going to get a parking ticket. Yeah. So <laughs> it takes a lot of time and a lot of study to be able to detect lies. And even then, like if I'm thinking of the same study that you were talking about, Elliot, uh, the lowest uh, rate of detecting a lie was actually by professional interrogators. And they're mm. the ones who... <laughs> who are supposed to be so confident in their ability to detect lies. But, you know, yeah. there there hasn't been anything. There hasn't been any 100% accurate truth serum that's been developed. I mean, people have been given sodium amytal, and they still are able to lie. Um, mm. The uh, the lie detector tests, uh, people use them, but they're not admissible in court. So that says a lot about how accurate they are. And people can... Yeah. They can, you know, pass a lie detector test and be 100% guilty. Not everybody exhibits the signs or what are traditionally thought of as the signs of lying, like sweating or increased heart rate or, you know, fidgeting or nervousness. People can lie and just be completely okay with it. It doesn't affect their physiology in any way. You know, psychopaths are notorious for being really good liars and not being affected by it at all. But... Not to say that we shouldn't try. <laughs> we should always yeah, be on the search for truth. Uh, but uh, I do want to play this clip that I found, which is a little bit more, some more um, clues on how to detect lies, uh, not really using those body movements or sweating or fidgeting or anything like that. Cause sometimes I wonder if that's not some kind of side op to get people to just give up on trying to figure out the truth about something or someone. And there are better ways to try to be able to detect lies than that. So let's go ahead and play this clip. Sorry, my phone died. It's nothing. I'm fine. These allegations are completely unfounded. The company was not aware of any wrongdoing. 
I love you. We hear anywhere from 10 to 200 lies a day, and we spent much of our history coming up with ways to detect them, from medieval torture devices to polygraphs, blood pressure and breathing monitors, voice stress analyzers, eye trackers, infrared brain scanners, and even the 400-pound electroencephalogram. But although such tools have worked under certain circumstances, most can be fooled with enough preparation, and none are considered reliable enough to even be admissible in court. But what if the problem is not with the techniques, but the underlying assumption that lying spurs physiological changes? What if we took a more direct approach, using communication science to analyze the lies themselves? On a psychological level, we lie partly to paint a better picture of ourselves, connecting our fantasies to the person we wish we were rather than the person we are. But while our brain is busy dreaming, it's letting plenty of signals slip by. Our conscious mind only controls about 5% of our cognitive function, including communication, while the other 95% occurs beyond our awareness. And according to the literature on reality monitoring, stories based on imagined experiences are qualitatively different from those based on real experiences. This suggests that creating a false story about a personal topic takes work and results in a different pattern of language use. A technology known as linguistic text analysis has helped to identify four such common patterns in the subconscious language of deception. First, liars reference themselves less when making deceptive statements. They write or talk more about others, often using the third person to distance and disassociate themselves from their lie. Which sounds more false? Absolutely no party took place at this house, or I didn't host a party here. Second, Liars tend to be more negative because, on a subconscious level, they feel guilty about lying. For example, a liar might say something like, Sorry, my stupid phone battery died. I hate that thing. Third, liars typically explain events in simple terms since our brains struggle to build a complex lie. Judgment and evaluation are complex things for our brains to compute. As a U.S. president once famously insisted, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And finally, even though liars keep descriptions simple, they tend to use longer and more convoluted sentence structure, inserting unnecessary words and irrelevant but factual sounding details in order to pad the lie. Another president confronted with a scandal proclaimed, I can say categorically that this investigation indicates that no one on the White House staff, no one in this administration presently employed, was involved in this very bizarre incident. Let's apply linguistic analysis to some famous examples. Take seven time Tour de France winner Lance Armstrong. When comparing a 2005 interview in which he had denied taking performance enhancing drugs to a 2013 interview in which he admitted it, his use of personal pronouns increased by nearly three quarters. Note the contrast between the following two quotes. First, okay, you know, a guy in a French, in a Parisian laboratory opens up your sample, you know, Jean Francis so and so, and he tests it. And then you get a phone call from a newspaper that says, We found you to be positive six times for EPO. Second, I lost myself in all of that. I'm sure there would be other people that couldn't handle it, but I certainly couldn't handle it, and I was used to controlling everything in my life. I controlled every outcome in my life. In his denial, Armstrong described a hypothetical situation focused on someone else, removing himself from the situation entirely. In his admission, he owns his statements. Delving into his personal emotions and motivations. But the use of personal pronouns is just one indicator of deception. Let's look at another example from former senator and U.S. presidential candidate John Edwards. 
I only know that the apparent father has said publicly that he is the father of the baby. I also have not been engaged in any activity of any description that requested, agreed to, or supported payments of any kind to the woman or to the apparent father of the baby. Not only is that a pretty long-winded way to say the baby isn't mine, but Edwards never calls the other parties by name. Instead, saying that baby, the woman, and the apparent father. Now let's see what he had to say when later admitting paternity. I am Quinn's father. I will do everything in my power to provide her with the love and support she deserves. The statement is short and direct, calling the child by name and addressing his role in her life. So, how can you apply these lie-spotting techniques to your life? First, remember that many of the lies we encounter on a daily basis are far less serious than these examples, and may even be harmless. But it's still worthwhile to be aware of telltale clues like minimal self-references, negative language, simple explanations, and convoluted phrasing. It just might help you avoid an overvalued stock. An ineffective product, or even a terrible relationship. Very interesting. Yeah, it was really good when he said about how、uh, liars will try to distance themselves and not refer to the person that they're talking about by name or themselves. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because it kind of kind of matches with、uh, another、um, interesting piece of info、um, from、uh, one of the SOD articles we were looking at for this.、Um, that's called "Watching Someone's Face Does Not Help Detect Lies; It May Actually Hamper Your Ability."、Um, and in it, they basically talk that people people look for a lot of these visual cues, like、uh, like Elliot was talking about. You know, the fidgeting, the the sweating, the lack of eye contact. But that apparently it's a lot easier for people to detect lies by just listening,、mm-hmm. and that a lot of that visual information may actually be a distraction, and it doesn't actually、um, it, it actually hampers the ability to to detect the lie because you're missing a lot of the verbal stuff that might actually be、um, giving away the lie. And interestingly, in this article, they talk about how in U.S.,、uh, the U.K., and Canada, courts have actually not, don't allow.、Um, Uh, women to wear a, a veil、um, while they are testifying、mm-hmm. because they think that you know then they can hide something you know by being veiled、uh, it means that they won't、um, you know people won't be able to see if there's any visual cues that they're actually being deceptive but、um, what they've done in in studies or in this one study that they're talking about、um, they actually found that lie detection was a lot easier when、uh, the subject or,、um, was veiled in some way, or they, the the people who were trying to detect the lie couldn't actually see them,、um, and that you know in situations where you can't see the person, like when you're on the phone or something like that,、um, you actually are much more accurate in your ability to detect lies. So that's kind of interesting because a lot of the the things that, that the guy was talking about in the video, well, were about kind of. Analyzing the the words that people use,、mm-hmm. and、uh, looking at at, at verbal、um, cues rather than visual ones. Yeah, and another thing about、uh, visual cues, I think that people who are very skilled at lying, like psychopaths,、uh, they try to distract you with all this excess, you know, gestures or extra excess details. To keep you from concentrating really on what they're saying and the content of what they're saying,、um, mm. it's 
kind of like, uh, I forget which, was it uh, George W. Bush, who was talking mm. about catapulting the propaganda <laughs> and how uh, you have to repeat a lie over and over again and people will start to accept it. Uh, like you have to, well, science, scientific studies have shown that like if you repeat something three times, people have... Uh, people are more likely to believe what you're saying to them if it's repetitive and they're Hmm. less likely to take some new information on board if you just say it once and this information is novel to them. Hmm. And and there's also um, a technique that is actually used in neuro-linguistic programming. And if you look at a lot of sort of politicians' speeches, you you see it. It's, um, there's, there's, is technique where you ask three questions and you you are sure that the answers to those three questions are always going to agree so for instance you'll say something like you have an individual who say do you want cheaper housing <laughs> you know everyone's clearly going to say yes to that <laughs> or you say do you want to be more happy and again just basic questions that, that an individual is sure that they are going to get a positive answer from and then uh, the idea is, anyway, is that when you have been asked three questions and you say yes to each one of them, then um, then it puts you in almost like, a, or it puts the individual in almost like a, a semi-hypnotic state where they are more agreeable to whatever follows that content. And so um, mm. I'm not sure if this is necessarily something that's used by liars, um, it probably is, but it's it's actually a technique that is being taught to individuals in in high high positions who are public speakers and and things like that, or trying to sell products. Um, so that is one interesting factor to, cons- to consider. But I think with uh, a lot of the psychopaths or even just pathological liars, these types of individuals from you know probably day one <laughs> or when they're very young children, I think. Um, it's safe to say that these individuals study human interactions. Um, You know, they're they're watching consistently how people get what they want to get and and which ways to manipulate others so that they can achieve the goals that they want to achieve. Um, And so by the time they get to adulthood, I think they are probably so skilled at uh, understanding human psychology or understanding how mm. to manipulate human psychology um, that for the average person it's very hard to fathom um, and like when one of us tells a lie you know it's, <laughs> often people stumble you know or they get self-conscious and they they get nervous and it's quite a horrible thing you know it feels kind of feels kind of bad when you tell a lie even if you know that it's a white lie and that you know maybe it's it benefits both parties if you do tell a lie either way it still kind of feels a little bit bad for me anyway um so Mm. yeah it's very hard for 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 us to understand this but i think that's probably the case with these types of individuals that's probably how they're so skilled at doing it Mm. well another there was one Go ahead, Doug. No, go ahead, Tiff. <laughs> I was going to say there was a, a, another interesting point that was brought up in one of the articles that we were researching. Like, it's very difficult to tell when somebody's lying. I mean, some people are really bad li- liars, and it's kind of obvious. But when you get up 
the scale all the way up to a psychopath. I mean, it can be very, very, very difficult. And one thing that helps, I mean, not that you'll always be successful 100% of the time, um, because if we were successful in figuring out the lies, maybe we wouldn't be in the situation we are on a societal level Mm -hmm. at this point. But um, this particular person was talking about how important it is to network with other people and to share your observations. Not just this person says, yeah, I think he's lying, or another person says he's telling the truth. It's actually the act of talking it out with each other, sharing what you've seen and what you've heard, and sharing what you know about that person to help you reach a better conclusion about whether or not someone is trying to pull the wool over your eyes. Well, yeah. I mean, that just makes sense. Even in the example you gave before, Tiff, about the guy who was walking on his toes, I mean, essentially, that was networking that actually figured him out. Yeah. You know, with the one guy probably said, hey, isn't it weird that that guy always walks on his toes? And the other guy was like, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> so it's just comparing data, you know. Um, hey, this, this guy said this to me. Do you know anything about this? Or it's like, well, that doesn't, doesn't vibe with what he was telling me. And, you know, that's, I think it, it's, it, it seems pretty evident that, that networking is kind of the best way to kind of figure these things out. And a lot of people will consider networking in that sense, you know, people might say, oh, that's just gossiping or, you know, talking Mm -hmm. badly about somebody behind their back. But really it's sharing information and it's sharing observations. And it kind Mm -hmm. of depends on the group that you're with, too. If you're with a group that's committed to seeking out the truth no matter what, then obviously you're going to come up with better conclusions and get better information. Versus mm-hmm. just somebody that you know from down the street whose life is a total wreck and they can't really stop lying to themselves, let alone detect lying from somebody else. That might not be the best person to network with about trying to detect mm-hmm. a lie and figure out the truth. Yeah. <laughs> and quite, quite frankly, like there are probably many instances where there is simply no way of telling whether someone is lying um, and sometimes it doesn't necessarily matter as as long as it, it doesn't significantly affect you or significantly affect others in any way you know like say if someone just randomly comes out with something someone you've never met you meet on a train tells you their life story it doesn't really matter if they're lying to you or not because there's no way mm. that you can ever verify that but if it's in another situation, um, it can probably take long and careful observation and it's networking with others. And quite often, if someone's uh, words don't match up with their actions, that's uh, generally, I think, a, a good starting point to, to suspect that this person may be trying to manipulate you in some way. Yeah. I mean, the chances are pretty low that you're going to come up with a decision Right at that moment, it takes a, a long, long time to be able to figure out whether someone is honest or not or whether they're pathological or not. You have to get to know that person. You have to look at their behavior in all situations, not just in the situation where you might be questioning them and asking for the truth. You have to see like how they behave normally like are they normally like a fidgety person or how do they speak Mm -hmm. normally do they you know get straight to the point or do they give a lot of details um but if you notice a difference between how they act when you're questioning them about something specific versus how they are all the time that can give you a clue 
as to whether they're being deceptive in that moment or not. Mm-hmm. You know, some people can lie for minutes straight and some people tell a lie like really quickly and then they hope that it's over and nobody notices. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to look well, yeah, at the that's... cluster of their behavior, not just their their behavior in one situation. Well, one interesting thing, I mean, because we've talked about this a couple of times, how like, you know, lying can actually be uncomfortable. Um, but there was an interesting study that showed that once you start lying, more lies actually become easier in an emotional sense. So although the first lie might have that kind of your amygdala is kind of like, oh, no, this isn't good. This is bad. As you keep on going, it kind of becomes easier and easier. And there was one uh, study that they did where um, it was, I, I can't remember the exact setup of the study because it was a little bit complicated, but it had to do with guessing how many pennies were in a jar. And um, uh, if they exact, there was different um, um, kind of subset groups of the study. And, you know, one of them is if, if you over exaggerated your answer, um, it would benefit you, but it wouldn't benefit your partner who was like um, not present, but they would, um, if you guessed right, then I guess they were supposed to benefit as well. But, uh, you know, if you under-guessed, then it would uh, benefit the partner and not you or something along those lines. Anyway, what they found is that people, as the experiment went on, became more and more comfortable giving more and more outrageous answers if they would benefit more from it. So they were they were kind of like looking at this this emotional response from lying, and it, it, what they found is that the more the person was lying, the easier it became for them to do so. So I thought that was pretty interesting. So maybe that is an answer there on those uh, compulsive liars. They've just gotten to a point where it's uh, easier than telling the truth. <laughs> yeah, they're so totally comfortable with it. Nothing phases them. But for normal yeah. people, I think it's safe to say that lies desensitize the brain. Maybe for pathologicals, they're just born with a different brain. That's why it makes them such good mm. liars. Could be. <laughs> Yeah, and I think for the average person as well, say if they, whatever for whatever reason, maybe due to their life experiences or the way that they were brought up or, you know, any factor that sort of causes them to go on this downward spiral into, into lying, um, maybe it's, it's not so much a pleasurable thing for them. It's probably more the fact that they're so desensitized to it that they have just gotten into sort of the habit of being able to lie without experiencing those negative emotional effects whereas mm. with the with the pathological individuals uh, you know for some reason I, I think that that is probably different and i think that um you know i think there probably is some pleasure thing going on there but it's that's mm. really strange and that's really speculative but um that's the only way that i can sort of make sense of that that kind of lying mm. Well, 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 go ahead. Another bad thing about lying, if you're not pathological, you're just an average person. Um, lying d- desensitizes your brain. Uh, it can actually, if you get to the point where your amygdala still has a lot of activity when you do tell a lie, uh, it can actually cause an increase in the stress hormone cortisol and all the bad things that go along with that. So. Lying can actually take a toll not just on your brain, but on your body. Mm. So all the things that 
uh, excess cortisol causes like, you know, uh, weight gain, uh, poor sleep, um, pain, anxiety, mm-hmm. things like that. Uh, so it's good to not tell a lie because it can lead to excess stress and worry. And like I said earlier, place a barrier between you and the person that you're trying to have an honest relationship with. Mm. Well, what about uh, believing lies mm. or lying to the self? Because, you know, it was interesting when you brought up the definition at the beginning of the show, Tiff, you were talking about, you know, it's it's the, the um, deliberate um, misleading of someone. Mm-hmm. And that just made me think, well, what about somebody who kind of lies to themselves? Can you deliberately lie to yourself? Mm. <laughs> I mean, on some level, you have to know that you're lying about yourself or that you're in denial about something because you know not to go there. Yeah. But you don't admit it to yourself. Yeah, I mean, it kind of, you kind of have to take, you know, some ideas in psychology of how that exactly could work. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, there's a whole idea of the, uh, you know, the system one, system two um, idea that, uh, that Kahneman talks about in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, where, you know, there's the idea that you, the, the, the conscious part of your mind is not actually the one that's in control, even though that's kind of what we're aware of and, and, and everything that we're kind of consciously aware of. But there's a much larger kind of more um, like a deeper part of the brain that um, is, is like what's normally thought of as a subconscious. And I think it's kind of on that level that a person would actually know the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, so while their conscious mind might be able to, you know, at whatever level is decided to believe um, a particular point of view, um, at some level, at that deeper level, there probably is an awareness there that um, what they're believing is not, in fact, true. Yeah, but but does the definition of lying re- refer to intentious, uh, refer to conscious intention? You know, is it is it is it consciously intending to deceive someone? Because mm. that's sorry, there's something that I'm little bit confused about it <laughs> because yeah. if it's in the subconscious then can it be defined as a as a lie in 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 the way that we're speaking about it if if you are yeah. not consciously aware of that mm-hmm. <laughs> it's tricky and i mean in um i was i actually just read um uh, a paper by uh dr jordan peterson uh, where he's talking about self-deception. I don't remember the title of the paper off the top of my head. It was something about self-deception. And he doesn't use the term like lying to the self. And maybe that's how we can get around that. Maybe, maybe that's just an, you know, not a, not a totally correct term, but the idea that you can deceive yourself in some way, that you can kind of decide on some level, like you were saying, not to go there. Um, and to operate in such a way that, um, you aren't uh, fully cognizant of the fact that you are deceiving yourself. <laughs> I, I kind of feel like I'm talking in circles here. Maybe this starts with the first big lie that you take in and accept as reality, because that sets mm. your brain up for uh, kind of pushing aside anything that contradicts what you already believe, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And then it just becomes this whole feedback loop where 
whatever you believe, you seek out information and you accept information that uh, complements that. And anything else, yeah. you just push it aside. But um, yeah, in the book, uh, Political Ponerology, Andrew Lobachevsky talks about this. Um, he talks about uh, how accepting lies or believing in lies leads to the atrophy of critical faculties. So people who take lies on board and believe them as true, that becomes their reality and they lose the capacity to perceive pathological people or pathological thinking or behavior. Um, They put people who display pathological behavior, they put them on a pedestal and they treat their opinions as normal and as equal to other people's opinions who are not pathological. So basically they lose their common sense and they turn into half wits hmm. and they are unable to re- to perceive uh, psychological reality, which I think we are seeing a lot of that going on right now with this whole election thing and how mm-hmm. people are just, I don't know if they were this crazy <laughs> uh before and it's just coming out now but it just seems to have reached a fever pitch where it just it's like two realities butting up against each other yeah it's well, I, it's really spec it's sorry i was just gonna say it's it's kind of speculative but um one of the ways i i kind of try to look at it is almost um as if the the information that that one comes across uh, or sort of takes takes in um is 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 basically like an input to the system just like other things are so like you have food and you have light and you have emf and you have all of these different influences and the uh, like gurdjieff talked about impressions and they are almost like the, they're, kind of, they're, they're an input to the system basically and so if I guess on a, on a sort of fundamental level I, I question what, what does a lie represent you know what, mm. what sort of energy does that carry with it what, what, mm. what kind of information does that carry with it you know and, and when, you, it, when you take that on or when you believe that it's almost maybe it's like you are essentially adopting that and integrating that into your system and so um i'm sure there's stories about i mean dr gabo mate talks about how believing um or having these these false beliefs about ourselves um these negative beliefs can essentially lead to um illness like cancers and autoimmunity mm-hmm. um and i i kind of i think it may be related in some way and that when someone um is is believing in false information perhaps there's an er- energy that is carried with that information and that when that is integrated into the the the, the system of the body perhaps that literally uh, on on some level actually degrades uh, uh, an individual's capacity to um to function and to see reality as it is almost mm-hmm. if that makes any sense um yeah yeah i think it does i do think that in a lot of cases too there's a certain um like there's there's a certain hierarchy of how um 
what people kind of value. And I think for a lot of people, the truth is not very high on that hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And I think that in a lot of cases, um, group identification can actually be more important than truth. Um, so it's kind of like people will kind of glom onto this, this group, um, and that's the group that they identify with. And if that group happens to be believing this lie, then people will take that as um, preferable to actually believing truth. So it's like belonging to this group. I'm thinking. I'm thinking about um, in uh, Barbara Oakley's book, Evil Genes. She talks about a study where they took like um, a bunch of diehard Republicans and a bunch of diehard um, uh, Democrats, and then told them a uh, a negative story about their candidate. And we're kind of doing, you know, brain analysis on them as they were doing this. And what they found was that they, rather than, you know, looking for, uh, you know, the, the parts of the brain that were associated with, you know, finding facts and knowledge and, and looking for truth weren't lighting up at all. It was all this kind of cognitive dissonance and like, um, they were actually kind of experiencing pain until they could come up with a narrative to explain away what they had heard. I might be, um, butchering that story a little bit, but it was kind of like, you know, the, the group identification was much more strong than the, uh, the desire for truth. You know, I think most of us, uh, people listening to us right now would probably be, you know, this like, no, I want the truth regardless of whether, you know, if there was some kind of like shockingly negative thing that came out about Putin or something like that, I think that we would all want to know. We're not just going to identify with, uh, a group because um, that's, you know, the identification that we've chosen. We'd be more inclined to seek out the truth and know, you know, what it is that we're identifying with. But apparently a lot of people don't work that way. Mm-hmm. So maybe it could be some kind of evolutionary holdover. Like it's much safer to be mm-hmm. a part of a group because you're all taking care of each other and you're providing for each other's needs. And if there's some truth that comes out that uh, kind of, uh, puts into threat your your standing with the group and mm. and if you want to go with that truth you'll kind of be cast aside and you'll be out on your own like one of our chatters in the chat room acts is truth lonely and sometimes it can be i mean if you're mm. pushed away from the group and from everything you know and basically it's like a disintegration if you Go away from that group. Your personality disintegrates. Everything that you believed and that you stood for and that you held dear is now gone and you have to rebuild yourself. And that can be very difficult and painful. And like with that study you were mentioning, um, uh, once the people found out a way to uh, ignore the information, the negative information about their candidate, uh, reward circuits in their brain turned on and they got like mm-hmm. a burst of feel good chemicals yeah. with that. So, um, yeah. it can be hard like, to yeah, break away from your group and, you know, go against what everyone else believes, but that's when it comes down to finding a group that feels the same way you do about you know, finding out the truth. Mm. Mm. So we do have another clip. And uh, this one is called uh, Lying and Its Effects on the Soul. Uh, So we can go ahead and listen to that. But um, it's talking about Plato a little bit. And uh, Plato had some fairly decent things to say. But considering uh, some of the things that we know about Plato and what platonic love 
really was. Uh, <laughs> just, just keep that in mind. But uh, I think this video has some good things to say. Hello, I'm Dr. Anna Dale, and I teach philosophy at Mount St. Mary's University and Seminary in Emmitsburg, Maryland. Our topic today is one line from Plato's dialogue, Phaedo, dealing with the effect that lying has on the soul. Science fiction author Ursula K. Le Guin, accepting a literary award in 2006, quoted Socrates, the misuse of language induces evil in the soul. This is an intriguing statement and one worth considering. Everyone who took intro to philosophy remembers that Socrates was executed by his fellow Athenians in 399 BC for the crime of corrupting the youth. Plato, in his dialogue Phaedo, describes his master's death in moving detail, his noble spirit discussing the nature of the soul right up until the fatal cup is brought and his calmness as he drinks the poison. Socrates rebukes his friends for their weeping and reassures them that death is nothing to fear, then exhorts them to live lives of virtue. Le Guin's quotation comes from the death scene at the end of the dialogue, where Socrates explains why he believes his soul will survive bodily death. Recently, a friend and I discussed different ways that translators have rendered this line from the Greek. Le Guin's quotation captures part of Plato's meaning. The misuse of language induces evil in the soul. But consider two other versions. A famous 19th century scholar gives this line as, for false words not, are not only evil in themselves, but they infect the soul with evil. And a more recent translation reads, to express oneself badly is not only faulty as far as language goes, but does some harm to the soul. These two versions convey an idea that is missing from Le Guin's version of the quote. Plato seems to say that misusing language is bad in two ways. It is bad in itself, or linguistically, and it is bad for the character of the speaker. It makes him a worse person. My friend suggested a more literal translation. Not to speak well, or correctly, is not only discordant regarding the thing itself, but introduces some evil into the soul. Plato very deliberately contrasts goodness in speech with evil in the soul. More importantly, the first problem with speaking badly is that it is discordant, it is jarring or dissonant, out of harmony with the thing itself. What exactly does bad speech clash with? Not with the rules of language, but with reality itself. Plato is not just warning us against misusing language in the sense of bad grammar or bad syntax. Speaking badly also includes telling untruths, telling lies, creating a conflict between speech and reality, between what is said and what is. To speak badly in this sense is to sound a false note in the music of creation. It is to put yourself out of tune with the way things are. This idea of discord or disharmony, striking a wrong note, is a very important part of Plato's worldview. Good speech, like good ethical behavior, participates in the harmony of a larger objective order. Our decisions either place us in sync with reality 
or at odds with it. In his excellent short book, Abuse of Language, Abuse of Power, the German philosopher Joseph Pieper observes that we use language for two purposes, to describe reality and to communicate with other people. Each function implies the other. When we describe how things are, we describe them to or for somebody else. And when we communicate with others, we try to tell them something about reality. What else could we talk about? The liar, in misusing language, violates both purposes of speech. He fails to describe reality as it is, and at the same time he corrupts his relationship with his listener. To lie is to withhold some part of reality from the other person, to prevent him from participating in something by knowing it. And talk that fails to communicate becomes monologue, or at worst, manipulation. The background for these observations about language and reality is Plato's critique of his rivals, the Sophists. Sophists were teachers who traveled around ancient Greece, getting rich by claiming to sell wisdom. Of course, what they sold was not wisdom at all, but only skill with words. The Sophists sold success. For the right price, they said, you can learn how to use words to gain power and money in the political assembly. You can convince the courts to, to give you a share of your neighbor's property, whether you deserve it or not. Socrates and Plato fought to define philosophy against this quest for success at all costs. The Greek sophists were the first nihilists, teaching that there is no such thing as truth. Or better, teaching that we can and should speak without regard to truth. The sophist is interested in reality, only as a topic for impressive speeches. What you say does not matter. The only th important thing for the sophist is how you say it. This concern for verbal skill is never neutral, though it might claim to be. By severing speech from reality, the sophist makes truth an optional add-in. I will teach you how to speak well, he might say, and then you can decide whether to speak truth or lies. The difficulty here is that in attempting to speak as though reality has no claim on me, I corrupt my relationship with the world and with other people. I degrade my humanity and damage my soul, as Plato would say. Sophistical speech always has an ulterior motive. When it does not aim at communicating the truth of something to another person, speech must be directed to some other goal, a goal of the speaker's choosing. When it abandons communication, speech becomes manipulation, and the relationship of solidarity between speaker and audience as co-seekers of the truth is fundamentally compromised. Pieper ends his essay by invoking one of the ideals of our civilization, free interpersonal communication anchored in the truth of reality, the reality of the world around us, the reality of ourselves, and the reality of God as well. This brings us back to Le Guin's point in her award speech. She says, Evil government relies on deliberate misuse of language. Because literary skill is the rigorous use of language in the pursuit of truth, the habit of literature, of serious reading, is the best defense against believing the half-truths of ideologues and the lies of demagogues.
The abusers of language are our modern sophists. Unscrupulous marketers, lawyers, politicians, those who push content-free slogans in the place of genuine communication about the world. Now as ever, the misuse of language is wrong in itself and also does some harm to the soul. Goodbye. Okay. What do you guys think of that? Interesting. <laughs> Very interesting. I like Yeah, it kind of reminds me of um I've been uh, checking out a lot of Jordan Peterson stuff lately and he's he one of the videos I watched recently he was talking about how you know it's it, it's important to always speak the truth. And I don't know that he's necessarily being literal about that like never tell any of those little white lies or anything like that but to kind of stand like you know to value the truth above all else and that whatever the consequence of that is actually the best thing that could happen. I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, I think he's speaking about the truth with a capital T, not just mm -hmm. not telling your friend that his haircut looks stupid, but <laughs> <laughs> standing up against yeah. pathology and giving the truth a lie what it deserves, which is the truth. And I thought it was interesting, yeah. uh, the speaker in this clip that we just played, talking about uh, truthful communication. Because when mm -hmm. you get down to a basic level, everything is communication. Like all the cells in the body communicates with each other. And anything that can warp that communication will lead to sickness and disintegration. Mm. So we want to keep the signal as, as strong and as pure as possible in all cases. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about truth with a capital T. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting idea because especially when, when you say that, you know, when, when Peterson says that, uh, you know, whatever the consequences are of you kind of embodying that truth, mm -hmm. you know, from from your perspective, it might seem like a really horrible thing, like the consequences are going to be so dire. But he says that, you know, maybe we just can't see with our like pea-sized brains that it actually is objectively the best the best thing whatever it might be. Like it might mean the dis disintegration of a relationship or something, something like that. But maybe that, you know, if, if, if that relationship relied on um, something other than truth, then is it something that you really were, it, was it a, a good place to be anyway? Yeah. So I, I thought it was, it was really quite profound and I actually had to think about it a lot after that. Mm -hmm. Those are really the best books, really. The ones you have to pause every now and then just to ponder mm. <laughs> on what the yes. author has said. But, uh, yeah. Back to this clip, I also yeah. liked how he was talking about how lying causes a disharmony with reality. And if you're, mm -hmm. you're part of any group that seeks out the truth, that's the last thing that you want. Um, and I think we're seeing that a lot. Uh, with these two sides of reality that are clashing. One is seeking harmony with the way that things are. I mean, not everyone has a whole banana and gets everything right, but mm. it seems like there's one side that is, you know, screaming for the truth and the other side that is comfortable with the lies and, you know, making themselves feel good or being part of the group and not wanting to, to step away from that. Um, 
And you have to pay yeah. attention to people's words. I mean, people can be very skilled, verbally skilled, uh, and put words together very well. But really, that doesn't matter. It just comes down to their actions. Mm-hmm. So we do, do we have anything more to add to that uh, that topic? <laughs> I think we covered it. Yeah. <laughs> don't don't lie to me, Doug. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure I could. If you give me enough time, I could come up with something else to say. But I, I think I'm tapped right now. Yeah. Well, we've got uh, Zoya's pet health segment here, since we mm. are coming up on our time. Um, so we can go to that. And uh, we'll wrap up when we come back. Hello, and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. Since the main topic of this week's show has to do with lice, I decided to touch upon the topic of lice as well. Particularly lice perpetrated by the big pharma and how their lice harm your pets. One example would be a recent scandal that has to do with the dosage of the mandatory rabies vaccine. Dr. John Robb is a respected doctor of veterinary medicine from Connecticut, USA. But now he is facing loss of his license and legal action for using half doses of the rabies vaccine on his clients. As an avid believer that vaccines carry a risk of adverse reactions, Dr. Robb delivered half doses to his clients and advocated vaccinating every three years, the interval that is required by Connecticut state law. Listen to the following news report about it. A local veterinary doctor spoke publicly for the first time today about a decision this week by the state veterinary board to place him on probation. As News 12 Connecticut's Frank Reckia tells us, Two state lawmakers say Dr. John Robb did nothing wrong. Every veterinary doctor that we contacted told News 12 Connecticut this rabies vaccine can either save an animal's life or kill it depending on how much you administer. But they say Connecticut law has simply not caught up with that simple concept. You can't give a two-pound dog and a 180-pound dog the same volume of a rabies vaccine. The little guys are getting sick. Some are dying. That's the problem. It's a problem that really complicated the life of veterinary Dr. John Robb, who was placed on probation by the state veterinary board for giving smaller dogs half doses of the rabies vaccine so as not to hurt or kill them. Rob is still able to practice, but says he is no longer allowed to administer the vaccine for the simple reason that he did it right. You're telling me that if there's a law that would force me to kill my patient, I would have to do it. Do you know what the State Board of Connecticut said? Yes. I said, you are crazy, okay? You are telling the doctor that if I know that this injection is going to injure that pet, that I have to do it because you created a law like that? Well, let me tell you something. The way you get rid of a law like that is you break it. Sometimes... You know, less is more. Monica Capoziello of the animal rights advocacy group Brazilian Pet Lovers says she supports Dr. Rob because she had a small dog die after it was given too high a dose of the rabies vaccine. I really do believe that small animals should have a small dosage. State Representatives Pam Stineski and Fred
Fred Camillo say they are sponsoring a bill that would change the law and make sure vets like Dr. Rob never again get in trouble for practicing common sense medicine. This is to address the consumer side of uh, good medicine um, with science-based evidence. This is the time for the public to come out and have their voices be heard on this issue. In Bridgeport, Frank Recchia, News 12, Connecticut. Lawmakers say they will schedule a public hearing on this issue sometime within the next two weeks, and we will follow this story and continue to keep you updated. Vaccine researcher Dr. Jean Dodds also asserts that vaccine doses can be safely reduced. She says uh, she has been vaccinating toy breeds with half doses for years. I myself witnessed in many cases when dogs, for example, moved while being given a shot, something that caused the doctor to spill large amount of the vaccine. But it was still okay, and the explanation given uh, was that there is a need only for a small amount of the vaccine, and the rest was just in case, or just to make sure it does its job. But what if such a large dose significantly increases the chances of causing damage? The huge lie is that an annual postcard reminding you that your dog or cat is due to its shots is the main way veterinarians get pets in the door each year. That's why many animal doctors at every kind of practice have chosen to ignore guidelines from the American Animal Hospital Association or other similar organizations in Europe, which since 2003 um, have recommended dogs not to be given what are called the core vaccines for distemper, parvovirus, and adenovirus more often than every three years. Indeed, the guidelines say a single series of these shots is probably enough to provide a lifetime of immunity. And yet, most of veterinary practices still do annual vaccinations because it translates into more money. They are a business after all. And if there are no clients, there are no salaries for the staff. That is a sad reality. On the other hand, it is possible to do tighter tests as well, which are unfortunately not widely available, and they are also more expensive. Bottom line is, we are indeed swimming in a sea of lies, and there is no easy way out. Just be careful and do your research, and try to make the best decisions for your pets. So I wish you a great and happy weekend and goodbye. Those are some truth-telling goats. (laughs) (laughs) I was trying to come up with something. I'm glad you did. (laughs) (laughs) Well... I guess we can conclude that the the best way to vaccinate yourself against lies is to always seek out the truth. You might not hmm. get to the to the very bottom of it ever, but the journey is worth it. Indeed. Indeed. So folks, hmm. I guess that brings us to the end of our show. I want to say thanks to my co-hosts, Doug and Elliot. Thanks to all of our listeners and our chatters. And we'll be back next week with another episode of the Health and Wellness Show. 
In the meantime, check out the truth perspective behind the headlines on Sunday. So have a good weekend, everybody. Bye. Thanks, everybody. Bye.